This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Last March, in response to the COVID-19 epidemic, Massachusetts declared a health emergency and ordered non-essential firms to close. Among the many effects, this action prohibited the 123,000 New Hampshire commuters from entering the Bay State to work, thereby putting any future income beyond the reach of Massachusetts tax collectors. That was until Massachusetts changed the rules. In April, the Department of Revenue published an emergency regulation declaring any income earned by a non-resident who formerly worked in Massachusetts to be treated as Massachusetts source income subject to personal income tax. To the strong objections of the homebound former commuters, the state gave itself the authority to tax income earned by persons who neither lived nor worked in Massachusetts. After asking Massachusetts to reconsider this unprecedented overstep, New Hampshire took its case to the Supreme Court to decide this interstate dispute. To help understand the details, merits, and precedents of the case, New Hampshire v. Massachusetts, as it moves towards the Supreme Court, is Elias Soman, professor of law at George Mason University. Professor Soman's research focuses on constitutional law, federalism, and migration rights. He earned his undergrad at Amherst College, his master's degree in political science from Harvard, and his law degree from Yale Law School. We will also touch on themes of Professor Soma's newest book entitled Free to Move, Foot Voting, Migration, and Political Freedom, and the ways in which its observations relate to this case. When I return, I'll be joined by Professor Ilya Soma. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now joined by George Mason law professor, Ilya Soman. Welcome to the show, Ilya. Thank you very much for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Now, before we dig into the complexity of the New Hampshire v. Massachusetts case, I'd like to define some terms uh, for those uh, who are listening who, like me, are not constitutional scholars. Uh, The first term I want to talk about or discuss is the term nexus. What is nexus and why is it an important foundation of this case? So nexus in this context means some kind of substantial connection to the state that is trying to tax you. Uh, this, the court has said that there has to be a substantial nexus before they can tax you. If it wasn't for that, then a state could potentially try to tax anything anywhere in the world or at least anything anywhere in the United States. And I would add that usually a nexus of this kind requires uh, that there be some kind of activity that the person or the organization is doing within the territory of the state, because uh, being a state is a territorial jurisdiction. Uh, It's jurisdiction over uh, a particular area of land, uh, as opposed to some kind of free floating power to regulate whatever you want uh, that might happen anywhere else. So let me just reduce that to a simple sentence and say, so states have the right to tax things that transactions that happen within their borders, um, including employment, of course, but not transactions in other states. Is, is that roughly uh, what, we're, what you're describing? Generally speaking, though, of course, there are some complexities in uh, borderline cases, including 
uh, when people come in from another state temporarily to do something uh, in, in your state, for example. Now, um, this is, is this a custom that states observe that they don't tax people who are not in their state or in other states? Is there legal precedence to support this right? Or, uh, or it, it, is, it, is not, it, it is more than just a custom. Uh, there are at least two parts of the Constitution where the court has, the Supreme Court has long held that uh, there are constraints on what states can tax. One is the Commerce Clause, where if states start taxing activity outside of their borders, uh, the court will rule that they are interfering in interstate commerce, which states are not allowed to do. Uh, the second is the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, uh, which says that these states cannot restrict life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Uh, and the court has long ruled also that if they start taxing or regulating activity, which is outside of their borders, then uh, that's a violation of due process because uh, the state doesn't actually have sovereign authority in that area. Uh, so this is not just a custom, it's a constitutional issue. I see. All right. So let's dive into the case and, and talk about how we got here. Last March, our Governor Baker uh, declared an emergency lockdown, and it essentially forbid all but essential personnel from going to their place of employment. Uh, New Hampshire commuters who followed their directive or this directive stayed home and learned to telecommute if they could. In April, Massachusetts made an emergency declaration that deemed that work performed entirely within New Hampshire subject to Massachusetts income tax. More than that, it also retroactively made this tax back to March 10th, um, the start of the lockdown. What's the foundation of of, of Massachusetts argument for this uh, special declaration? So I think these arguments don't ultimately work, but uh, they make two sets of arguments. One is they're saying, well, this is just an unusual emergency measure that's trying to preserve the pre-existing pre-COVID status quo where uh, these people were commuting to Massachusetts to work. I think everybody or almost everyone agrees that they could be taxed uh, for the work that they do within Massachusetts. So th this is just saying, well, we're taxing the same work that we would otherwise in the absence of the COVID crisis. It's just that now temporarily that work is being done at their homes in New Hampshire rather than at the office in Massachusetts. So one argument they make is that, you know, this is uh, an unusual temporary emergency measure. The other arguments they make uh, are actually more sweeping because they say, well, yes, these people may be in New Hampshire, but they're actually connected to the Massachusetts economy. They benefit from Massachusetts's wonderful business climate uh, or supposedly wonderful business climate at any rate, which allows all sorts of employers to be there and hire people, including people uh, who live in New Hampshire. Uh, so the theory here is that these people have a connection to Massachusetts, even if they aren't physically present. And indeed, perhaps even if they never set foot in the state from Massachusetts, but merely just work for Massachusetts firms. Uh, so they have these two arguments, one of which is an emergency theory, uh, but another which is actually much more sweeping. Uh, and uh, there, there is some tension here in that the second set of arguments, if you take it seriously, it would apply in a much wider range of circumstances. So let's take those two characteristics in, in order. Uh, first, you're less concerned about the fact that this uh, emergency order was in fact occurring during an emergency. Is there anything within law or within precedence that confers a special power in times of emergency for states to do these kinds of actions? 
output in the state. So there's no general emergency exception either to the Dormant Commerce Clause or to the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, the two provisions that, as I mentioned earlier, New Hampshire is using to challenge the swap. There, may, there are some exceptions perhaps for uh, public health measures uh, or so-called police power measures which protect people's health and safety and the like, including against disease. But this policy actually doesn't do that. Indeed, it has, it's the exact reverse. Uh, what it actually does is it makes it more expensive for people to work from home as opposed to going into the office. So uh, to some extent, at the margin, this policy probably makes the public health situation worse because it reduces people's incentive to stay at home in New Hampshire. And at the margin, if these people uh, feel like, well, they're going to be taxed the same way anyway, at the margin, some of them might choose to commute to Massachusetts rather than stay at home. Uh, so there's no way this is actually a public health measure. All it is is a revenue measure to get some extra money for Massachusetts, granted at a time when state government budgets are suffering for obvious reasons. But I don't think this can come under any kind of exception for the police power or for public health. It's not protecting public health. If anything, as New Hampshire points out in its filings at the Supreme Court, it may be making the public health situation worse. So then let's move to the second uh, aspect, which is to the uh, Massachusetts argument that uh, it's Massachusetts prosperity, perhaps, could I characterize it that way, that um, uh, New Hampshire benefits from, so they should not object to being taxed by the state that's conferring so much benefit to them. This argument, if accepted by the Supreme Court, would have sweeping implications. Uh, first of all, the implications can't be limited even just to people who are employees of Massachusetts-based firms. If you're an independent contractor uh, and a Massachusetts-based firm pays you to do some work, it could be that the wonderful business climate of Massachusetts affected that, or the fact that there are lots of potential consumers in Massachusetts affected that. Uh, it could even be that even if you're not being hired by a Massachusetts firm as such, if you're producing goods in another state that might be shipped to Massachusetts, again, the Massachusetts business climate and so forth uh, could affect that, that sort of the wealthier Massachusetts is, the, the more products they can buy from people in other states. So there's very little, if any, logical stopping point to this argument. And the end result is that if it's accepted, at the very least, Massachusetts and any other state could tax anybody who's working remotely for a firm that's headquartered in their state, or perhaps one that even just has facilities in their state. Uh, and uh, even then, uh, the logic might not stop with, the, with actual employees, but could apply to independent contractors and others. Uh, so it would, in effect, uh, give each state a sort of roving commission to try to find people in other states who have some kind of uh, connection to, the, to their economy and then try to tax them. There's one other troubling aspect of this uh, emergency regulation, uh, by my reckoning, which is that it was written in April, retroactive to March, and it was to have expired in July and then has since been extended several times since then. Is there any natural limit to how long Massachusetts can claim a nexus to itself and lay claim to taxing the income of those who had one at one time worked in Massachusetts? Is there anything in law that says this can't go on forever? 
I don't think there's really one that logically works under the broader theory that Massachusetts advance is the one that isn't really dependent on there being an emergency. I think there clearly isn't any limit. Uh, you could have left Massachusetts 20 years ago, but if you're still working for a Massachusetts firm at your new home, then you know they could still potentially try to tax you. Uh, but even under the emergency theory, the limits aren't nearly as tight uh, as uh, is claimed. Obviously, we live in an age when governments declare all sorts of emergencies for all sorts of things. Even the COVID emergency specifically, we all hope it's going to be over soon, depending on vaccination and other factors. But sadly, we don't know that for certain. Uh, and also, even if things ease up significantly, uh, government could still say, well, there's still some emergency going on. Things aren't 100 percent back to the pre-COVID status quo. It may be that even after most of the health risk disappears, many of these workers will still want to uh, work at home in New Hampshire. Some people prefer the experience of working at home now that they have it, not all by any means, but, but some probably do. Uh, so history shows that often when government claims new power in an emergency, they can often be very reluctant to give it up, particularly if, as in this case, it's an additional source of tax revenue and tax revenue from people who can't even vote in Massachusetts elections to, uh, you know, to try to ease the, the burden. Uh, so uh, I don't know what Massachusetts will do. Maybe, you know, once everybody or most people are, are vaccinated, maybe they'll give up this notion, but maybe not uh, because uh, Massachusetts and other state governments will still want uh, additional revenue and whatever Massachusetts chooses to do, uh, other states could potentially take advantage of the same sort of, uh, of, of the same sort of uh, loophole. So in, in talking about who's uh, being uh, harmed here, if you'll accept that term, uh, New Hampshire residents who had worked in Massachusetts who are now telecommuting from New Hampshire. Um, I've heard Massachusetts defend itself uh, in this case by characterizing it as an improper um, case in that New Hampshire itself is not being harmed, but rather its citizens are being harmed by this action. And as such, those citizens should uh, make their case individually to Massachusetts that they should get some relief from this emergency action. Um, this is a long question of saying, is it New Hampshire? Does New Hampshire actually have standing to represent its citizens who are being affected in this case? Or is it true that Massachusetts may have a case that say, look, New Hampshire, you've got nothing to do with this. Your citizens do. Uh, stay out of it. What, what would you say to New Hampshire's standing in this case? This is one of the issues that the Supreme Court will likely have to resolve as it considers this case. Uh, for those who may not know, the doctrine of standing says that in order to bring a case in federal court, it's not enough for you to be able to say, well, I think there's been a violation of the law uh, that the defendant has committed. You also have to prove, among other things, that you have suffered an injury uh, that can be redressed by a judicial decision in your favor. So here, as you mentioned, Massachusetts is saying, well, there's no real injury to the state of New Hampshire. The only injury is to individual uh, New Hampshire citizens. Uh, and I think New Hampshire has a couple of strong arguments as to why the state actually has suffered an injury. Uh, one is that Massachusetts is, in effect, dipping into the same tax pool as the one that New Hampshire uses, namely the tax pool of uh, New Hampshire-based New Hampshire residents and New Hampshire citizens. So uh, 
if I dip into your savings, so to speak, uh, then you know, you've suffered an injury, even if uh, I take out money that you weren't planning to actually use in the near future or whatnot. It's an imperfect analogy, but I think it illustrates the point. The second argument that New Hampshire emphasizes, to my mind, perhaps is even stronger, which is that uh, Massachusetts is infringing on New Hampshire's sovereign authority. Uh, that is that uh, only New Hampshire has the right to tax uh, income generating activity that occurs in New Hampshire, as opposed to in Massachusetts. And therefore, uh, Massachusetts is uh, intruding on uh, New Hampshire's sovereignty as a state. New Hampshire can sue for that reason. Uh, so to my mind, New Hampshire does have standing and the court should rule that way. But the whole doctrine of standing is very murky. Its boundaries are kind of fluffy. Uh, and uh, it's the kind of thing that only a lawyer can love. And frankly, even many <laughs> lawyers don't love it. So while I think New Hampshire has a good argument, uh, there has been no case quite exactly like this uh, that has come before the Supreme Court. So we can't know for sure what the court will decide on this. And I would note the Supreme Court has actually over the last few weeks uh, dismissed two cases brought by state governments for lack of standing. Uh, one is uh, Trump versus New York, the case where New York and a number of other states challenged the Trump administration's efforts to exclude undocumented immigrants from the census population counts that determine which state has uh, get, gets how many members of the House of Representatives. The other, of course, is the famous case where the state of Texas and various red states tried to overturn the election results uh, in uh, swing states that went for Biden in the election. To my mind, the standing case that New Hampshire has is much, much better uh, than those that either the blue states in Trump versus New York had or the red states in uh, Texas versus Pennsylvania had. Uh, but as I said before, standing is a sort of very murky doctrine. Uh, it's not easy to tell uh, what the court will do in any given case. And the doctrine of state standing is even murkier and more complicated and difficult than the doctrine of standing as it applies to individuals. Uh, so uh, it's hard to predict ahead of time what the court will do with it. So if the Supreme Court deems that New Hampshire does not have standing, what recourse would those New Hampshire residents who had worked in Massachusetts and who are now telecommuting from New Hampshire, what recourse would they have against Massachusetts to defend themselves against an onerous tax? I'm not fully expert in all the procedures that they could use, but I think they have a couple of options. They could file lawsuits in Massachusetts state courts. Uh, state courts have the authority to uh, here, federal constitutional claims as well as state-based ones, or they could try to file cases in federal court uh, and have that case work its way up through the system, uh, whereas the New Hampshire case is actually filed directly in the Supreme Court because when one state sues another state, that's one of the very few cases in which the Supreme Court has what is called original jurisdiction. That is, you can file a case directly in the Supreme Court as opposed to having to go through uh, first a trial court, then a court of appeals, and then the Supreme Court can potentially take it if they want to. Uh, but if individual taxpayers pursue these lawsuits, it would be burdensome for them. Among other things, they might well have to pay the tax first and then challenge it later to try to get the money back. Uh, and obviously litigating a case for individual taxpayers uh, is a tougher and more costly proposition uh, than it is for a state government. Uh, I think the state government also has the advantage that they can more easily 
overturn this entire system at a fell swoop, as opposed to uh, just getting a judgment for uh, an individual taxpayer, uh, though it's possible that you might be able to file a class action lawsuit on behalf of a, a large number of individuals at the, at the same time. So let's assume that uh, uh, New Hampshire is found to have uh, standing. And uh, so this is indeed a case between two states. You mentioned original jurisdiction. If I understand you right, um, in that case, one doesn't have to go through all the lower courts all the way up. Original jurisdiction suggests the first door you knock on is the Supreme Court. Is that right? Yes. Uh, as I suggested before, in the vast majority of cases, uh, if you want to file a case in federal court, you have to first go to the trial court known as the district court. Then if you lose there, you can appeal to the court of appeals. And then if you lose there, potentially you can ask the Supreme Court to take the case. Uh, and most of the time they won't even do it. They reject the vast majority of cases that come before them. On the other hand, when you have an original jurisdiction case, you can file it directly in the Supreme Court. There's only a few types of cases where you can do that, but one of them is where one state government sues another. So Texas versus Pennsylvania, the election case, that was a case that uh, Texas went directly to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court then said they didn't have standing, so they didn't actually get much out of it, but that was a prominent recent example of an original jurisdiction case. Now, this Supreme Court case has really been brought on by the pandemic, where uh, workers who had been working in Massachusetts but living in New Hampshire are now perhaps telecommuting. I was reading a statistic that before the pandemic, roughly 5 million Americans were telecommuting. Now more than 50 million Americans are telecommuting. So this seems to me to be likely to be the tip of the iceberg. That is, if we can live and effectively work wherever we want, uh, won't high-tax states have more citizens emigrating out of the, the state into low-tax states and, in a sense, uh, taking their tax revenue with them? Uh, do you see it's likely that uh, states are going to reach out and try to grab back the money that is leaving, uh, largely due to the ability to telecommute? I think it's too early to say exactly how much more telecommuting there will be in the long run, as opposed to right now. I think there are some people who are very happy with the telecommuting arrangements that they have and would like to continue them even after the pandemic is over. There are other people who can't wait to get back into the office uh, and really dislike working at home where we're screaming children around and so on. So I think, and also obviously it depends a lot on the industry uh, that uh, we can't forget that there are many millions of people who have to physically show up for work. Uh, they might be less represented among the listeners of this podcast, which might be disproportionately upper middle class white collar professionals, but people in many, many jobs, they can't do this. That said, uh, there was some growth in telecommuting even before this crisis. And I think it's likely that over time, there will be at least some more growth. And states, as you mentioned, particularly high tax ones, if they can get away with uh, taxing telecommuters who live in other states, then they would love to do so. Uh, and I think the pandemic uh, and associated crisis will increase that tendency because obviously many states uh, have shortfalls in their budgets and the federal government, uh, which traditionally subsidizes states in various ways uh, in the future, they will be experiencing more and more fiscal problems. So that spigot of revenue from Uncle Sam might not be as available to state governments as it is right at this moment. Right at this moment, it's actually bigger than normal because of all the COVID-related spending. But I think 
almost all economists agree that's not sustainable in the long run. Uh, so I think states will try to do this uh, and if they can get away with it. Uh, and from their point of view, it might be an attractive proposition because you can tax a whole bunch of people who can give you money, but at the same time, most of them, probably all of them can't vote in state elections. So they can't really have much political leverage over how much you tax them. Uh, and also you tax these people, but provide them with almost no public services in that you know they're not using the state's infrastructure for the most part. They're not sending their kids to public schools in the state. Uh, they don't even require much, if any, police or fire protection, because obviously they're located in another state. From So from the state's point of view, this is almost free money. And if they can get their hands on it, uh, I think they very likely will try to do so. Now, there have been a number of prominent amicus briefs in support of New Hampshire's case uh, that I've seen, uh, two that were uh, one led by Ohio, another, I believe, by Hawaii, um, from states, but also uh, several others from prominent legal scholars. Do amicus briefs help New Hampshire in this case, or are they merely a footnote in the debate? So there is two uh, state briefs, one which I think probably won't make much difference, the other which I think can be helpful. There is a brief filed by 10 states, 10 red states led by the state of Ohio. It does not try to address the merits of the case. What it says is that uh, in, in the position of these states, the Supreme Court cannot reject uh, an original jurisdiction case out of hand, that they can't simply say, you are not allowed leave to file this case, that they have to address on the merits, and they have a constitutional argument for that proposition. Uh, I think that argument is actually pretty good, but the Supreme Court has now twice rejected it. Uh, their brief was filed just a few days before Texas versus Pennsylvania. And in Texas versus Pennsylvania, seven of nine Supreme Court justices basically said, we can deny the leave to file the case, uh, which basically meant they, you know, they, they, they told these states to go away uh, while issuing a short, very cursory decision and that they didn't have oral argument or elaborate briefing uh, beyond the initial filings and so on. Uh, Justices Thomas and Alito do agree with this argument. They've stated their agreement actually in previous cases going back to 2016, but the other seven justices don't agree with it. And I think it's very unlikely that they're gonna change their mind uh, so soon after Texas versus Pennsylvania. So that brief I think is unlikely to have much significance, even though it's well-written and you know makes some good points. The other brief filed by four states, three blue states, and also the state of Iowa. Uh, I think the, the blue states are Hawaii, uh, New Jersey, and Connecticut. And then there's also the state of Iowa. That brief goes to the merits, and it supports uh, New Hampshire's arguments on the, uh, the Commerce Clause and the Due Process Clause. I think it's a well-written brief, but it also shows that there are a number of state governments which do have common interests with New Hampshire. Not surprisingly, all of them are state governments where a good many telecommuters live. Obviously, many people who live in New Jersey or Connecticut, they telecommute to uh, places of work in New York City. Uh, Hawaii, I think, has lots of people who work for mainland uh, lower 48 state uh, firms and so on. Uh, Iowa, I'm not sure about, but I think it may be they have people who work in Chicago or other big Midwestern cities and the like, uh, or, or who telecommute to those places. Uh, so, 
uh, this puts the court on notice that this case is important enough that it's not just New Hampshire that cares about it. It's not aberrational uh, to New Hampshire. Uh, also, there's a very interesting brief by leading lead tax scholar Edward Zawinski, who himself actually is a partial telecommuter, and he, I believe he lives in Connecticut uh, and telecommutes to Cardozo Law School in New York City much of the time. Uh, and he's he doesn't like the fact that New York City tries to tax him not just for the income that he earns on days when he's at Cardozo, but even when he sits at home back in Connecticut and you know, prepares assignments for his students or writes academic articles, whatever, uh, they're trying to tax him on that uh, as well. So I think he he wrote uh, an excellent brief going through some of the uh, tax law issues uh, related to this. Uh, so on balance, I think these briefs do strengthen uh, New Hampshire's position and make it somewhat more likely that the Supreme Court, that the Supreme Court at the very least will give the case serious consideration and probably won't dismiss it out of hand in the way that they did with Texas versus Pennsylvania. Okay, now we're here in mid-February 2021. As someone who follows this case closely, uh, where is the case now? And what is the likelihood that the Supreme Court will rule on it in the near future? So the case is actually already at the Supreme Court because that's where New Hampshire filed it. Uh, I think the, uh, the Supreme Court hasn't taken any action on it in, I guess, the uh, something like two to three months since it was filed. Uh, however, uh, they did ask the federal government, the Justice Department, to give their views on the case. So uh, the new Biden administration, their solicitor general uh, or their acting solicitor general, uh, because they don't have a permanent one yet, uh, she uh, will probably weigh in in some way. The very fact that they've asked her to do so is some indication that they're taking the case seriously. Uh, and the next stage will be for them to decide uh, whether they want to just dismiss the case out of hand, like they did with uh, Texas versus Pennsylvania, or whether they want to pro uh, go to a more extensive uh, hearing of the case that may include oral arguments, additional briefs, uh, and so on. In principle, I don't think this is likely, but in principle, they could even have a trial over the case uh, or uh, additional fact finding or the like, though I don't think it's that likely because I think the facts of this case are already pretty clear. Uh, it's not really a factual dispute. Uh, so if I had to guess, I think it is likely that the court will give this some sort of serious consideration uh, and there is some chance that they will ultimately rule that New Hampshire doesn't have standing. Uh, but if they don't, then they'll have to uh, decide the case on the merits. So I'd like to take our focus uh, now that we've covered New Hampshire v. Massachusetts. I'd like to take our focus a little further back and tie into some of the themes explored in your, your recent book, which I thought was excellent, um, entitled Free to Move, Foot Voting, Migration, and Political Freedom. Uh, I think, again, you'll... Forgive me if I over uh, oversimplify, but I think um, the theme of the book that I took away was uh, the ability to vote with your feet is perhaps more a more powerful political act than going to the ballot box to vote. Can you describe uh, the themes of the book uh, related to our topic here today um, and how you see it relating to uh, the case we're discussing? Sure. Uh, so in the book, uh, I discuss voting with your feet and I explain some key advantages that it has over traditional voting at the ballot box as a mechanism for exercising political freedom, for being able to determine what government policies you want to live under. 
Uh, and in the book, I discuss three different types of voting with your feet, voting with your feet in the private sector, like for instance, private school choice uh, or private planned communities. Another is voting with your feet through international migration and most relevant to our current discussion, voting with your feet in federal systems, like the one obviously that we have in the US. Uh, and voting with your feet has two important advantages over ballot box voting. One is that when you vote at the ballot box, you have only an infinitesimally small chance of making a difference. About one in 60 million uh, in a presidential election, it's somewhat higher in say a Massachusetts or a New Hampshire state election, but it's still only one chance in probably hundreds of thousands or millions uh, that you have to actually swing the outcome of an election. By contrast, when you vote with your feet, you have a much higher chance of making a difference. You don't need the agreement of hundreds of thousands or millions of other people before you can choose which state you wanna live in. You may need the agreement of your spouse or of other family members, but that's for most of us at least less of a steep hill to climb than getting the agreement of millions of other people, uh, many of whom we have no way really of, of influencing. Uh, so you have more of a chance to make a decisive choice that actually matters. And in addition, it tends to be a better informed choice uh, because when you vote at the ballot box, the very fact that the decision has so little chance of making a difference, that really destroys your incentive to seek out a lot of information. Why spend a lot of time learning information when the chance that your new information will actually make a difference, the outcome, that chance is so incredibly small. And indeed, there's lots of evidence that I discuss in my book, Free to Move, and also in my previous book, Democracy and Political Ignorance, on how people, when they vote with their feet, they do a better job of acquiring and using information uh, than when they vote at the ballot box, uh, precisely because of this difference in incentives. Uh, so to bring it back to the present case, if states can nonetheless say, like, you can run, but you can't hide from our tax authorities because we're just going to continue to tax you even if you move to another state and you never even set foot back in our state, uh, so long as you continue to work for an employer uh, in our state, or perhaps even so long as you continue to interact with our economy in any significant way, we're still gonna tax you. That obviously makes it much more difficult to uh, vote with your feet and it severely limits it. So uh, one of the reasons why I would like to avoid this kind of extraterritorial taxation is precisely to prevent people from cutting off or to prevent states from cutting off foot voting opportunities and to foster beneficial competition between states. Uh, I grew up in the state of Massachusetts. I love it, but I must say that uh, New Hampshire has been quite successful in competing with Massachusetts because they offer much lower taxes, also lower housing prices, but the quality of their public services in most cases is at least comparably good. And sometimes it might be even a little bit better in Massachusetts. So uh, to the extent New Hampshire has gained a lot of people from Massachusetts because they're offering people a better deal. Uh, and that's unfortunate for the Massachusetts state government, but that's something that's good for the public. Uh, even those who remain in Massachusetts and never leave, uh, they benefit from the possibility that Massachusetts has to reckon with the fact that uh, New Hampshire or some other state might attract them away. And therefore Massachusetts has to adopt somewhat better policies than it would otherwise, 
one reason why Massachusetts lost the nickname that it used to have when I was young, when it was called Taxachusetts, is that they lowered their state taxes in the 1980s and 90s in response to competition from other states uh, in the South and Southwest, but also New Hampshire as well. So whether you live in Massachusetts or in New Hampshire or somewhere else, uh, you should want this sort of beneficial competition between states where, in effect, they should compete with each other to offer better public services, but at lower cost. So New Hampshire is keeping us in Massachusetts honest. Is that right? To some degree, yes. Uh, and in Massachusetts, no, sorry, New Hampshire is a well-run state, which is right nearby. And it has no income taxes and no sales taxes. It does have some user fees and other taxes, uh, but... Uh, uh, the very possibility of that, uh, that uh, cramps the style of the Massachusetts state government to some degree, but it's good for Massachusetts residents uh, because, uh, you know, they have this other option uh, that they could potentially exercise. Wonderful. Now, for those listeners who have uh, uh, enjoyed our, our topic today, where can they find you and learn more about your work? And of course, your writing on this case we've been discussing. So, so you, they can look at my uh, website, just Googling my name, you can find it. And there's a lot of links to my writings on many different topics. Also, I write regularly for the Volok Conspiracy blog, V-O-L-O-K-H, which is hosted at the Reason Magazine website. And I've written several pieces about this case there. And I will continue to cover it uh, as the Supreme Court makes its way through the case and they decide what they're going to do. Wonderful. I'm sure they'll uh, will enjoy reading more about this. We're getting close to the end of our time together, so I want to wrap our show up um, by having you offer some uh, advice to those policymakers, legislators, uh, even voters, or those who might vote with their feet. Uh, what would you like policymakers to be aware of when they either write new tax laws, new regulation, new limits, or in fact? emergency regulations that touch other states. What would you like those who are listening to think about uh, and take away from our show? So I would hope that they would try to foster beneficial competition and not try to tax people uh, who flee their state or whatnot. They should instead adopt policies that make their state more attractive by offering better services at lower cost. I know that as a practical matter, the temptation for many state governments will be strong to try to engage in this sort of extraterritorial taxation, especially since it's extracting money from people who aren't even voters in their state and therefore can't vote them out at the ballot box. So as a practical matter, I recognize many state governments will not listen to what I have to say. They'll be even less likely to listen to what I have to say about this uh, than perhaps some other issues. But I would add this much that what Massachusetts can try to do to New Hampshire, other states can try to do to Massachusetts. So Massachusetts in our integrated economy also has some residents that work for out-of-state firms that are connected to, uh, to the economies of other states. So uh, there are people in Massachusetts who, for instance, work for New York employers uh, or Connecticut employers and so on. Those other states uh, can try to tax Massachusetts residents just as Massachusetts is trying to tax New Hampshire residents. So if you have uh, the constitution is set up in a way to prevent trade wars between states, if you have this kind of tax war uh, where each state is trying to tax other states' citizens 
in the long run, I'm not saying every state will, will be a net loser, but some states that might initially say, wow, this is great. I can tax those people over the border. They might not be so happy if their neighbors say, well, we can do this to you too. Uh, and you know, even in the New Hampshire versus Massachusetts case, there are probably more New Hampshire people that work for Massachusetts employers than vice versa, but there are certainly some the other way. So New Hampshire could potentially say, we're imposing a special tax uh, that uh, applies to uh, people in Massachusetts who work in New Hampshire. Maybe they couldn't make it openly discriminatory. Maybe they would have to have some kind of way in which it looks like they're including other people as well, but they could easily structure a tax in such a way that at the very least disproportionately applies to uh, people who work uh, to, to Massachusetts residents who uh, telecommute uh, to New Hampshire firms. And even if New Hampshire doesn't have a strong position against Massachusetts in this respect, there might be some other states, New York, Connecticut, and so forth, uh, whose position could potentially be stronger. Uh, so uh, the state governments might want to show some restraint, if only because uh, if they don't, uh, what they do to others can potentially be done to them in return. Well, a word of warning, right? Um, well, we'll have to end the show there. That was a, a wonderful answer, and I pre really appreciate your time. Uh, you've been very informative. I know our listeners have learned a lot about this case, uh, and I guess we'll watch this space. Uh, we'll see how this turns out in the Supreme Court. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Hubwonk is a podcast of Pioneer Institute. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support us. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your local podcatcher. You can offer us a five-star rating. You can give us a favorable review. And of course, you can share it with friends. If you have comments or questions or ideas for future episodes, you're welcome to contact me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.